You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 6. And while you're turning there, I want to point out uh, a couple of things real quickly. Um, Please be in prayer. Continue uh, to be in prayer for uh, our building project. Uh, You saw just an update or two, a picture update or two. Uh, Just a a lot of things coming together here in the summer. This is an incredibly busy time for us. Uh, I have said all along that a building project in a church is like trying to change a flat tire on a moving car. And uh, we can't stop ministry and stop all that we're doing and focus all of our attention on a building. And so there's just a lot going on in these next uh, couple of months especially. So be in prayer for that. I also want to point out the banners that you see uh, up front here this morning. Uh, Some of you are fully aware of what these are all about. Uh, But one of the main ways that we partner with families, like the ones who came this morning dedicating their kids to the Lord... Uh, is through discipleship ministries like GAs and RAs. GA stands for Girls in Action. That's a discipleship program for girls in first through fourth grade. Uh, RAs is Royal Ambassadors. It's a discipleship program for boys in first through fourth grade. Uh, And their awards programs are this week. And so tomorrow evening, the fourth graders who will be graduating out of those Uh, those programs uh, will be going into Club 56, and then uh, the first through third graders will have their awards program in here on Wednesday evening. And so uh, there's a lot going on over the next couple of weeks. But one of the main reasons I wanted to point all this out, apart from the fact that these are a great display of all that the kids have done throughout the course of this year, uh, each of the patches and the medals and all the things that you see up here represent something that they have done uh, in those programs, whether it's been scripture memory or a project, a missions project, just a number of different things. And I would encourage you, if you know any of these kids, uh, if you're a grandparent today, uh, ask them to show you their banner. And uh, I know that they'll be proud to do that. But really what I want to do today is recognize our volunteers. Um, some of you may not realize that on a Wednesday night, there are as many people, nearly as many people on our campus on a Wednesday night as there are on a Sunday Uh, And there are really four groups of people that meet uh, regularly that are high school age and below. And that's RAs and GAs. Uh, That's Club 56, which is uh, for just 5th and 6th graders. And then student ministry for 7th through 12th grade happens right here in the Family Life Center. So we're going to start with the GAs. And so all those who have served by volunteering on Wednesday nights through GAs, would you stand right now? Please don't be bashful. Go ahead and stand. Absolutely. I feel like there's a few more who maybe aren't standing, but we want to say how much we love and appreciate you. Now, all of our RA guys, we want all of you to stand up for just a moment. All the RA guys, come on, stand up. All right. Uh, Club 56. Club 56. The Narrows. Griff back there helps lead in Club 56. Crystal Cannon. That's a special group right there because... uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, if you've got a fifth or sixth grader at, at your house, and, and I do, I'm one of you, um, bless your heart. Uh, that's all I've got to say about that. Now, uh, we love Club 56 and uh, so grateful for those who lead. And then those who lead out here and help lead out here uh, on Wednesday evenings with student ministry. We have small group leaders and others who help out here each and every week. If you would stand right now, too. Several. 
And so uh, we just want to pause and say how much we appreciate you. And I want to pray uh, a prayer of thanksgiving for you. Because what does not need to be lost on you is that most of these people, when they get here on Wednesday night, they've already put in a long day's work. <laughs> they could easily head to the house, sit down and have dinner, whatever, kick back in the recliner, but they choose to be here. Um, and it's an incredible sacrifice. And so um, we thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for those who give of their time, they give of their energy, they give of their resources. Uh, in so many ways uh, to help disciple kids and students. Uh, Lord, we thank you that there are those who are willing uh, to uh, get in the trenches of ministry every week and uh, come alongside boys and girls and uh, uh, middle school kids and teenagers uh, to help them uh, come to know you maybe for the first time, uh, to grow in their relationship with you. And so, God, we just pray that you would... Um, Allow them to see just a bit of the fruit of what uh, you are doing through their labors of love and their ministry. And God, we thank you for that. And uh, so look forward to all that you have in store for uh, this summer uh, as we kind of close out this uh, particular season. I pray, God, for uh, camp ministry. I pray for uh, VBS coming up, for Mission Wyoming, just so many things. And so, God, we commit these to you as well. Uh, Lord, we love you, and we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our current sermon series, Person of Interest, uh, we are now in John chapter 6, and last week, Griff did a great job of walking us through uh, verses 16 through 21 there, uh, as he covered the better Moses. Uh, the better Moses didn't just walk the people through the, the, the water, as it were, at the crossing of the Red Sea. The better Moses walked on the water to his disciples, and most importantly, got into the boat with them. And so what great truth that is. This morning, we're going to look at verses 22 through 40. And so if you have a copy of God's Word there, I hope that you will uh, follow along with me as I read, picking it up in verse number 22. It says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So as Jesus and the disciples step ashore, John catches us up on what has been happening with the crowd. The crowd noticed that only one boat left the shore uh, for the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee. They also noticed that Jesus was not in that boat, and so naturally they were looking for Jesus. Once the crowd realizes that Jesus is not in the area anymore, they don't seem to stop and ask how he could have slipped past them in the night. Instead, they simply get in the waiting boats and cross back over. Now, Jesus um, and his disciples have gone back to Capernaum, and they're, they're heading to the synagogue where Jesus will deliver a fairly lengthy discourse uh, that is found in verses 35 through 58. We're going to cover just a portion of that today. And whether this initial exchange actually happens in the synagogue itself as they're preparing for worship or outside as they're making their way into the synagogue is unclear to us. But this dialogue in verses 25 through 34 seems to take place before uh, Jesus' main address uh, and discussion with the Jewish leaders in verses 35 through, through 58. But right now, Jesus responds to the question of the pursuing crowd. And their question is, Rabbi, how do you get here? And, he, and what he does is he calls out their motives for seeking him. Jesus is always about getting to the heart of the matter. Uh, and I think that's sometimes why we can sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable uh, when we uh, stop and consider the teachings of Jesus. He's not going to explain himself to them. He's, he's not going to give them any more reason to want to make him king, uh, as we talked about over the last couple of weeks. Instead, he's going to expose their heart motivations and call them to what they really need to know and believe about him. So he says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Uh, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, You were seeking me not because you saw signs? We've talked about signs quite a bit already in our study of John's gospel. But what does he mean by that? He means that they're not coming to him as the promised Messiah. Believing in him with a true faith in response to the clear evidence that they've seen and tasted for themselves. Instead, they're coming to him simply because they got a free meal and they want another. So much of the motivation with the people in the crowd was, what, what can we get from Jesus? What can Jesus do for us? What will he do next? And so Jesus urges them, do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And so instead of waiting for the next thing that Jesus would do for them, the crowd needed to understand the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 as God's seal to attest Jesus as the Son of Man, the eternal King that God had promised to his people. 
Jesus has so much more to offer the crowd than a free lunch. And he alone can give them food that does not perish. Food that endures to eternal life. This food will be the focus of Jesus' discourse here. As he announces to the crowd that he himself is the bread of life. Now the crowd actually seems to respond pretty well to Jesus' rebuke. And they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? But even this response, which seems so, so earnest and so sincere and, 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 and even wise, is actually a bit misguided. They think that they will need to do something to earn the food that endures to eternal life. So the crowd was misguided, not because they wanted to do the will of God, but because they were seeking a task list uh, that they can complete in order to earn eternal life. And that's the way that a lot of people view Christianity, in fact. They think that we just adhere to some big task list, and if we do certain things and don't do other things, then someday, hopefully, we'll find ourselves good with God. But that's the anti-gospel. <laughs> that's not what Scripture teaches at all. Uh, and so they naturally are thinking this way. What are the things that we must do? We want to be rule followers. We want to be the task doers. And so they're saying... Okay, Jesus, we realize that eternal life is much more important than a lunch, and that's where we're moving in the right direction, so tell us what we need to do to get it. Well, Jesus gives a direct answer to the question. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, that's a theme that we've seen running throughout John's gospel thus far. It is the purpose for John's writing this gospel. Remember, we looked at that in the very first message in this series a number of weeks ago. He writes, so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and you also continue to see this theme of Jesus being the sent one. That's what he's talking about here. And so he tells them very plainly that the only work God requires is not a work at all. It's faith. And as a way to attain eternal life, faith is actually the anti-work. Faith is receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. Works looks to yourself, to your own obedience, to your own performance. Faith looks to Jesus, to his obedience and his pleasing of the Father in everything. Works done to attain eternal life are a quest to establish your own righteousness before a holy God. But faith is an abandonment of such a futile endeavor and a complete turning from yourself to Jesus Christ and to Christ alone. The answer to the disciples' struggle and fear and the answer to the crowd's quest for food is answered in the same way. Believe in Jesus, the one whom God has sent. He is the bread of life to satisfy he is the Savior to redeem and to rescue. He is the one who will bring us to God, give us eternal life, and raise us up on the last day. So Jesus pushes aside their desire for religious works in this task list and instead calls them to put their faith in him. Now, those of you who know me better or well know that I, I like questions. I think we learn a lot by asking and answering questions. And so as I studied this section of the text, I couldn't help but, uh, but, but see four different questions that kind of leap out of, of these few verses. And so that's what I want us to consider today as we look at, at the, next, uh, the remaining section of our text here today. The first question is this. Are you seeking a sign or are you begging for bread? 
Are you seeking a sign or begging for bread? So the crowd responds to Jesus' statement by issuing him a challenge. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Talking about the the exodus, right? In the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So you need to remember, of course, that Jesus has just miraculously performed a wonderful sign in the feeding of the 5,000. It's actually more than 5,000, right? We need to also remember that when the crowd first approached Jesus in verse number 25, asking him uh, when he crossed the Sea of Galilee, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, they witnessed the miraculous feeding, but missed the reality of it as the sign that it was. They missed the point. Pointing to him as the Son of Man, as the Messiah. So now, when the crowd asks for a sign, what are they really seeking? They suggest to Jesus the sign of the manna uh, for, uh, for a reason. They are still focused on getting free food. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that that most of the average man's working wages in that day particularly went toward feeding his family. If people wanted anything extra besides food, uh, clothing, dishes, furniture, oil, even, etc., then they typically had to save what small portion of their income didn't go to food. They had to save that for a long time. And they also probably had to pick up some additional work on the side to be done after hours or by other members of the family. Now, we need to keep in mind today that this is the way most people throughout history have lived. And it's still the way that most people in the world live today. A sobering statistic is this, that 71% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. But beyond the practical reality of poverty, this exchange shows us something about human nature that we have observed repeatedly, particularly throughout this chapter. And that is this. We tend to think that our most pressing needs are physical in nature and that our deepest longings can be satisfied materially. I think that is especially true in the the part of the world in which we live. Few, if any of us in the room today, know what it is to really, truly go hungry. I've been hungry before, and I've even said, if I don't get something to eat, I'm going to die. Have you said that? (laughs) I wasn't even close to dying. I got plenty of reserves, okay? (laughs) We have no idea what it is to live with that kind of need and want. So this crowd suggests manna from heaven as an appropriate sign because they're convinced that if their daily need for food was miraculously met, then they would finally be truly satisfied. I mean, it's just like people today saying, you know what, if I could just get Chick-fil-A for a lifetime, I'd be set. That's all I would need. I'd be happy, right? I know some of your kids probably would be. I don't know, but that's what they're thinking. That's the way that they're seeing this. They're missing the point. There's a second question I think we need to look at here today, and that is, who gives true bread, Moses or God? If I had to give this morning's message a title, I would probably call it Wonder Bread. I don't know if Wonder Bread is still on the market or not, but I remember eating Wonder Bread as a kid. 
Um, and, and so I would call this wonder bread, true bread from God. Jesus responds to their demand for a sign by calling their attention to God and not to Moses. Jesus then said to them, John writes, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Moses was faithful in all God's house, and he was. But Moses was not God, and he was not the true deliverer and the true provider for God's people. The people of Israel had been waiting for a new Moses, a new hero to come along and lead them out of bondage and into freedom, to give them a new set of rules to follow in a renewed and revigorated kingdom of God. Jesus wants to, them to see that someone better than Moses has arrived. They first need to stop worshiping Moses as the deliverer and the provider and see that God is the only one who truly delivers and provides. And what does God provide? Jesus, you'll notice here, suddenly shifts to the present tense and he gets real personal. My father, present tense, gives you the true bread from heaven. We're no longer talking about the past. We're talking about right here and right now. And the surprising turn of phrase actually connects back to what the crowd had said when they quoted scripture in verse number 31. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now the crowd was, was probably quoting, or at least had in mind, Psalm chapter 78 verse 24. Which the ESV reads this way, it says, And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. So the fact that the crowd was expecting this sign from a new Moses was evidence of their misplaced focus. For it is God and not Moses who's praised in Psalm 78 for this. But Jesus picks up on this reference and he says, Not he gave them the grain from heaven, but rather in the present tense, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And Jesus then further elaborates. He says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the crowd should have realized at this point that Jesus was not talking about physical bread. He's talking that their minds are confused, and so they respond in a similar way to the way that the woman at the well responded in John chapter 4. Remember her? Jesus offered her living water. And she said, give me some of this living water that I may never thirst again. So in the same way, they're saying, give us this bread always, that we may not have to hunger. Well, Jesus now makes his claim explicitly clear. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Understand this. We hunger with a hunger which nothing that this world can satisfy. You can be stuffed from an all-you-can-eat buffet, amazed that you could manage to eat all that you just ate and still be hungry with this hunger. We thirst with a thirst which nothing in this world can ever satisfy. And Jesus says that true satisfaction is found only in him. And when Jesus says, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, he is describing the same thing in two different ways. You must come to Jesus in faith. 
We come to him when we believe in him. And he also uses the present tense, which does, it, it, it gives us and holds forth this idea that this is an ongoing coming and believing. So he's not saying that once you believe and turn to him in faith, you never experience this soul deep hunger and thirst ever again. But rather, when you hunger and when you thirst in this way, you can turn to Jesus and believe in Jesus and you'll find satisfaction for your soul. It's only found in him. As we continue through the text, I find another question here. And that is belief versus unbelief. What makes the difference? Belief versus unbelief. You see, the sad truth today is that many people come to Jesus and never believe in him. Right after Jesus said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He said, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So what makes the difference? Our culture likes to say that seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. But what Jesus says here directly contradicts that kind of thinking. So if seeing does not make the difference in the matter of salvation, what does? Why do some people come to Jesus and receive the gift of eternal life while some people see and yet do not believe? Jesus clearly states the truth in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You see, even though this crowd was skeptical and disbelieving, Jesus' mission as Messiah does not fail. So know this. The success of the mission of Jesus as Messiah never depends ultimately on human will, but on God. We can't thwart God's plans. God doesn't look down at faithless, fearful, fretting Mike Lovely and say, Wow, you just blew my plan. <laughs> God doesn't, that's not how God works. That's not how God works. The Father gives people to the Son, and whoever the Father gives will come, and whoever comes will never be rejected or ejected, as it were. Some people try to set the Father's giving and our coming against each other. And it's been this colossal theological battle for a lot of years. It's what seminarians sit around and squabble over and all those kinds of things, while we're also trying to figure out if God can make a boulder so big that he can't move it, you know, that kind of stuff. We're not going to settle that issue today, okay? But when Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, it is clear that the root cause of our salvation is in the giving of the Father. But it is also clear that the giving of the Father always leads to our coming to Jesus. And so if you want to know whether the Father has given you to the Son, the right question to ask is this, have you come to the Son believing in Him? If you have, then the Son will never reject you. And if you have, it is because the Father has given you to His Son. Your faith is not an accident. That's not an accident. And so that brings us to the fourth and final question today as we look at verses 38 through 40. Where do we find secure salvation? And we're living in a day particularly when people want security. They want financial security, they want job security, they want security, security for the future, got to have a retirement account, all those things. 
There is nothing more important than your eternal security. So where do we find secure salvation? So we've seen that true satisfaction is found in Jesus alone, the true bread from heaven. We've seen that our salvation by faith uh, comes by faith in him from God the Father giving us to Christ. Now, how do we have any assurance of our security in him? The text again, it says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So throughout the Gospel of John... One of the clear themes is that Jesus came from heaven. Remember, he was the sent one. Came from heaven to do the will of his Father. He is absolutely on a mission from the Father. And it is his Father's will that nothing of all that the Father has given the Son should be lost. So for our security and our salvation, we have two strong assurances. The will of the Father in giving us to Jesus and the commitment of Jesus to fulfilling the will of his Father. Only if the will of the Father and the commitment of the Son can be broken, and we don't believe that it can, can we be lost if we have come to Jesus for eternal life. All that he has given me, the text says, and everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and will be raised up by Jesus on the last day. Now that begs another question, I guess. What does he mean by being raised up on the last day? Interesting, isn't it? We just sang about it a few moments ago. I believe in the resurrection. It wasn't just talking about the resurrection of Christ, but it was talking about our resurrection as well. So our doubts and our fears, they're stubborn things, especially when they are fueled by the enemy of our souls. Jesus gives us even stronger assurance of our security by twice pledging, not just to never cast out anyone who comes to him, but to raise us up on the last day. This is not something that like expires, right? Jesus goes all the way to the end of our salvation, the consummation of all things, and, and, and pledges twice that he will raise up all whom the Father has given him and all who look to him and believe on the last day. This is such a, an amazing, glorious promise, such an anchor for our souls in seasons of trial and distress. Jesus sits at God's right hand right now, ever living to make intercession for all whom the Father has given him. For all who have come to him, for all who have looked on him and believed on him. And he has given his word that he will raise up all those who trust in him on the last day. Now what does he mean by raising us up on the last day? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a stirring vision of the coming last day in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a chapter that's often referred to as the resurrection chapter. And listen to the words of verses 50 through 57 there. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does this perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed, for this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass that a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, if you continue to read in that that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us the application of that certain victory. That coming transformation in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast in light of what I've just told you. In in, in light of the security that you have in Christ. In in light of the future promises of God as it relates to the, the, the completion of your salvation. In light of all that, be steadfast. Immovable. In a world that seems like like you're standing on shifting sand, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What an incredibly bright future for the people of God. And as crazy as this world can be, and we continue to see it highlighted every single day that we we continue to live on on this earth, in this broken, sinful world, You can know, you can know that ultimately the victory is ours through faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. If we could for just a moment bow our heads and close our eyes together. You see, to believe is to internalize the truth about Jesus. Thinking about Jesus is not the same as believing. Knowing facts about Jesus is not the same as believing. Understanding how Jesus saves a person is not the same as believing. Believing is staking your life on the fact that the only way to live is to by faith receive Jesus Christ. It's placing all your hope on him to sustain you. It's placing all your confidence in him as the only one who can give you life and strength and a future. It's sad to think, but the crowd predominantly chose to reject the bread of life. They grumbled about what Jesus said. Just as the Israelites of old grumbled about the manna in the wilderness. Believing on Jesus is not always easy. Believing demands relinquishing all other means of salvation. It means saying, I cannot do it on my own. I can't save myself. I'll die apart from Jesus. I'm helpless and hopeless. Jesus, save me. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, give me life. Augustine famously said this, You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. I'd love to keep the spirit of that statement, but tweak the words just a bit. If he was reading this passage, 
Then Augustine might say it this way, you made us to hunger for you and our starving souls find no nourishment until they feast on you. Only Jesus can fill the emptiness inside, can satisfy the hunger and the growling in your soul. Only Jesus can give you life. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I invite you to take that step of faith today. Whether you're here in the room or you're watching with us online, I would love to meet with you personally and share with you from God's word how you can know that your sins are forgiven, that you're in a right relationship with God, not based upon anything you have done or ever could do, but based solely upon what Jesus Christ has done for you. Father, we thank you today for your word, for the clear teaching of your word that there is nothing that can satisfy the longing in our souls but you, the bread of life. If there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit and by the power of your word, they be drawn to you today. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.